You may be seated. Thank you. Dave, would you come meet us? Thank you, worship leaders, for good music. Encouraging. All right. Say a quick note. Uh, back before COVID, if you can remember how long ago that was, <laughs> uh, we had a question box out, and if there were questions that came up during the sermon, uh, you could submit those, and uh, I didn't try to answer all of them, but the ones that worked in, I tried to take some time to do that. We've kind of gotten out of that habit, but uh, uh, the other week, somebody did submit a question, and they put it in the offering box. That was fine. I got it uh, a little bit later. And, uh, uh, and I wanted to speak to that just uh, briefly. The question I got there was not connected real directly, but it may well have grown out of something I said. It's an important question. It's not one that I'm going to be able to take up right now. Uh, but like I say, it is important. And questions are good even when they may not get answer, answered up front. Uh, so I did want to say if, if that person is here and you said, boy, I, that was an important question to me and it didn't get answered, what I would encourage you to do if, in this case, we're not going to take it up at this point at least, is to uh, feel free to make an appointment with me and I would love to take time and just dialogue with you on that. Again, I, I think it's an important question. It's just not one we're going to address right here. But if you have questions that come up along the way, they can be directly related or kind of tangential uh, to what we're doing. Feel free to put them in the offering box and uh, the folks that count the money will get it to me and uh, it may shape directly what we do on Sunday morning or it may just be an opportunity for me to uh, have a conversation with you at some further time. And you can keep them anonymous or you can sign on. Either way, it's fine with me. Okay? All right. Well, we're back to our series on transformation, learning to live in the kingdom of God. So we're the people who have been enrolled in the school of the Messiah and we are trying to learn from him how he would live our lives if he were me or you. And uh, another way to say that is then that we are learning to live in the kingdom of God. We are looking to be transformed and shaped in such a way that, that our peace fits into the larger puzzle that is God's vision of the world that he's bringing about, the new creation, as Paul calls it. And as we've been thinking about that, we've turned our attention a number of weeks to the passage in Romans 12, also in Ephesians chapter 4, which talks about transformation. And there, that transformation is linked to the renewing of our minds. Because the truth of God gets access to us through the mind, 
what the mind focuses on is uh, where we tend to go. And so we're renewed in our minds, which then leads to the fuller renewal of our persons. We've seen that, that renewing the mind requires us to become mindful. To be mindful is to think about our thinking. Or, in the phrase of Kurt Thompson, we learn to pay attention to what we're paying attention to. The reality is you're always paying attention, but you're not always aware of what you're paying attention to, and that's what mindfulness is in this sense. I got a good illustration of that uh, this week. Uh, Naomi Curry sent me an article by Tim Keller. It was a, a book review he did on the theme of Christian nationalism. And as I read it, I thought, oh, this, this is maybe worth just an example, because we're trying to get into our heads what it means to think about our thinking. So Keller says, a fascinating example of this influence of Christian nationalism on the church is Michael Sparks, an evangelical Christian who was among the rioters who entered the Capitol on January 6th. Over the last months of 2020, the more involved he got on social media, see, what was he paying attention to? The more involved he got on social media, the more he grew in rage, where extremists on both sides went after each other, and where he was pulled into a Christian nationalist media bubble. His beliefs made him susceptible to Christian nationalist ideology, but his local pastor and church friends, seeing his growing rage, advised him to get off of social media and tried to show him that all his angry rhetoric did, uh, all his angry rhetoric did not evidence the love of Christ, or if we want to say it another way, did not reflect the kingdom of Christ. Now you see what happens. Michael Sparks, I don't know him, probably you don't either. We don't have to for this illustration. Here's what we do know. We do know that he didn't suddenly wake up on, De on January the 6th and say, you know what, I think I'll go to Washington DC today and get involved in a riot. That's not what he did. Rather, he, perhaps unconsciously, he prepared himself to be the kind of person who under mob influence would join in in an unthinking way. He prepared himself for that. Let's say it a different way. He discipled himself into that kind of a mentality. Did he purposefully do that? Probably not. But he wasn't paying attention to what he was paying attention to, even though he had Christian friends and a pastor who saw what was happening. Now, uh, this is totally beside the politics, right? Because as Tim Keller points out, there's 
there's angry stuff on the left and there's angry stuff on the right. The point is that what you pay attention to is forming you. It not only will form you, it is forming you. You right now have been formed by what you've focused on. It happens to all of us. So, as Dallas Willard says, everybody gets a spiritual formation. The only question is, is yours a good spiritual formation? That's the question. And that's what we're trying to look at in this series. All right? So, the last few weeks we've been talking about that side of our humanity that often we've been taught to neglect. And that is the element of of emotion, that, that energy that courses through us that we organize our lives around, and we thought a bit about different kinds of emotion, how that impacts us. I mean, here, obviously, with uh, Michael Sparks, it's the, the emotion of anger, which was not uh, well-watched in his case. Well, today, I want to go to the beginning of the biblical story, and I want to talk about another emotion, a very important one, and it is the emotion of shame. So here's the story. We'll pick it up at the end of Genesis chapter 2, the last verse, which is clearly a conclusion to what's gone before in chapter 2, in which we get a, a more detailed account of the creation of human beings in the image of God and, and what that meant. So it's a summary statement, but it's also a lead-in statement to chapter 3. So that sort of apology for breaking into the story that way. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. She's made at least three changes in God's word in that short space. It's an extraordinary uh, presentation here. The serpent says, You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. 
so I hid. All right, a remarkable story that you can come at so many different ways. Uh, we're just going to track it in one direction today, and that's in this idea of shame. Let's think about the story of shame, because this is where the story begins. <clears throat> what is shame? There's the elements of the story in that uh, beautiful stained glass, huh? Adam and Eve, naked, unashamed, the tree with its fruit, and the serpent, the crafty character, the dangerous character, entwined about the tree, right in the middle of everything. That's where he gets himself. Yeah, he, he postures himself right in the middle of what's most important. So let's try a definition here. What is shame? <clears throat> Human beings are created with the possibility of shame. That's an emotional possibility for us. Created that way by God, which means that shame, like our other emotions, is in itself a good thing. Even as anger is a good emotion, but it needs to be used correctly. Shame, when it's activated, is an emotional response to our fallenness, to our failure. As I say, it's a, it's a God-given voice. We've used the image of emotions as, as uh, warning lights on your dashboard, right? It's a, I'm old school. It's hard for me not to call them idiot lights. I'm sorry, but uh, it's hard for me to avoid that. <clears throat> but uh, we've likened emotions to that. Emotions signal to us the flow of our energy and highlight things that we need to pay attention to. And shame is one of those indicators. It's a God-given voice. Now, it's not activated until sin comes into the world. So, the end of Genesis chapter 2 prior to the entrance of the, the enemy and what he brings about, prior to that, there's no experience of shame. That's what verse 25 tells us at the end of chapter 2. Uh, the, the man and his wife were both naked. They were exposed. They were vulnerable. But that wasn't a problem because there was no sin. So they could be open. They could be open before each other. They could be open before God. Before sin. They had the capability. They had the warning light in the dashboard. But there was nothing wrong in their relationships. So it didn't go off. They weren't ashamed. But sin enters in. 
and the warning light begins to flash. There's trouble in River City, right? No shame before sin. And, and I think we want to say that just by way of defining a little bit further, shame and guilt are related, but they're not precisely the same. So as I try to pull those apart, it's something like this. Uh, guilt is the, is the fact that we have violated a commandment. We've crossed a border, right? And that's, that's guilt. We've, we've broken a regulation. And there is guilt involved in, in Genesis chapter 3 because they have violated a command of God. And I always used to read it when I would teach my students on Genesis chapter 3 and the origins of sin. That's, that's what I talk to them about, Right? But it's more recently that I've realized that the passage itself doesn't talk much about guilt. It talks about shame. And that's, that's, the, that's how it connects immediately to the chapter that's gone before. It's the shame question. The man and his wife were both naked and they had no shame. The lights weren't going off. But now they disobey the command of God. They become guilty, yes. But shame is something different. Guilt says you have violated a commandment. Maybe you know, maybe God's command or maybe just the traffic law. You drove too fast. The cop got you on the radar. You're dead in the water. You got pulled over. You're going to pay a fine because you're guilty. All right, that's not so bad. The bad part is the shame. Because those those cotton pickers, they know how to do it, don't they? They pulled you over with all the lights flashing. And once they pull you over, they don't turn the lights off. They want the whole neighborhood to know the way that you have offended. Am I alone in that? I pay double my fine. Turn those lights off. Yeah. That's shame. See, guilt is transgression of a law. That's more objective. Shame is subjective. Subjective in that I feel it. And what I feel is I am somehow not adequate. I am not what I ought to be. And what I fear is that I am going to be <coughs> on display before the world. We understand this passage, don't we? We understand that when shame comes in, what's the first thing that happens? Adam and Eve <clears throat> feel exposed. They, they want to protect themselves. So the first thing they do is they make clothes for themselves because they feel vulnerable. They feel exposed. And then God comes, looking for them, to talk with them. And they hear him, and they hide, and, and Adam says, we heard you, and we hid because we're naked. 
We hid because we fear. We fear you. I heard you and I was afraid, says Adam. And that fear leads to the hiding. Which is, uh, you know, I, lo- I love the picture because it's kind of cute. Because the kid can't really hide behind that tree, right? But think about Genesis 3. Adam, they're trying to hide in the garden from God. God, you can't see me. I'm behind this tree. I made clothes so I wouldn't be exposed to you. That's the story of shame, friends. Or at least that's part of the story of shame. It's this God-given signal that there's, there's something wrong with the automobile. There's something wrong with the human person. I'm not who I ought to be. And I feel that. And the, and the feeling brings fear. And it leads to hiding. Now it leads to hiding, not because it has to, but because that's the enemy's strategy. See, like all good gifts, and our emotions are God's gifts to us, but all good gifts that God creates are fair game, you might say, for the enemy. He, he takes them all. The gift of language, hardly a greater gift you can think of that God has created us with. But what happens? Well, it gets hijacked by the enemy so that the Apostle James can say that the tongue is a world of evil set on fire by hell itself. Is that a problem with God's creation? No. That's the problem of living in a fallen world post-Genesis 3 and having an enemy who is ever so crafty. Well, so here is shame. It's a good gift from God. It's It's a warning light on the dashboard. But the enemy's strategy is to hijack that good gift for his own purposes. And we see him doing that right from the start. The picture there probably reminds you of, I guess we could say, the the greatest hijacking in human history, huh? In terms of, of impact, the world has changed as a result of that. And the thousands of people whose lives were lost as those planes crashed into the Twin Towers. What the enemy does, however, in hijacking shame, has far greater and more disastrous consequences than what happened on September 11. Far more. Shame comes into the picture and gets used by the enemy to leverage apart, to break apart the relationship between Adam and Eve and their loving creator. That's not what it's meant for, but that's the way the enemy uses it. 
the message of shame as it comes through the craftiness of the enemy is uh, if you can't measure up, you need to cover up. Now that's precisely the wrong thing. Huh? We, we understand that. We've often gone into hiding ourselves. Uh, that's my first response to shame when I feel like I'm exposed, when I get a view of myself that I'd rather not have, I want to cover up. I want to cover up from other people, but I, most of all, I want to cover up from God. I don't want his gaze. I don't want that feeling of being naked before God. But, you know, think about it. That's exactly what is needed. (laughs) When Adam and Eve were naked, before the fall, before sin came into the world, that was good for them. They, They didn't feel like they were in danger. They didn't feel threatened. They didn't feel ashamed of who they were. They were God's good creatures in communion with him. And the, and the point of shame is not to make us hide. That wasn't God's intent. I mean, think about it. Uh, you're, uh, you got that new car and you're driving along and all of a sudden a light goes on on the dashboard. And you say, wow, I didn't even know that light was there. <laughs> wonder, wonder what that's for. And you pull out your owner's manual and you, you look through to the page that gives dash light indicators and you look down, you, you find the symbol and uh, you read what it tells you to do. And it says, if this symbol comes on, your engine is in trouble. Do not take it to the garage. Wait a minute. Must be a misprint here, right? Shame is the indicator that God has given to us that our relationship with others, perhaps, but preeminently with him, is not what it should be. It's the indicator that says, get to the repair mechanic. Fix the relationship. And to do that, you have to come to God himself because that's where the problem is. The point of the indicator is to get the repair. But the way it gets twisted is Through the work of the enemy, the indicator goes off and we hide, we ignore, we turn away. We cover up. And the result is shame, particularly undiagnosed, unrepaired shame, is everywhere. 
That's a pretty interesting statue. You've probably seen that before, but it, <clears throat> it speaks volumes, doesn't it, to the, the feeling of shame. The desire to hide from the gaze of other people. Shame is everywhere, <clears throat> often by intention. Think of, uh, what do we call it today, body shaming? Think of the <clears throat> stuff that gets sold because of body shaming. Think of the people who are in pain <clears throat> because of body shaming. And then extend that to all the other ways in which we shame one another. The internet is a, an extraordinary source of shame for people. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, you've read some of the blogs and stuff, right? Uh, where people in, a, in the comfort of relative anonymity say the most wicked and abusive things toward other people. Much of them are words of shaming. Words that send the message, you are not adequate, you're not enough, you are not worthy. And people can be driven to depression and ultimately even to suicide through shaming. Unintentional, sometimes, often intentional. We're so used to it, this shaming. We've experienced it ourselves, and so we know how to do it. So Kurt Thompson says, shamed people shame people. That's, that's true, right? We've experienced it. We know how to do it. <clears throat> Sometimes we do it even unintentionally. Parents may be tempted to try to motivate their kids by shaming them. You got a B? Wow, I, I really thought you should get an A on that grade. No, that's, that's shaming. Uh, how, about, uh, <clears throat> how about the inappropriate use of humor at the expense of other people? Often there's a shaming element in that. Or sarcasm. Sometimes we use sarcasm to motivate people. But it's a shaming enterprise. If we can borrow an idea from Garrison Keillor, shame is the gift that keeps on giving. <clears throat> we receive it ourselves in a variety of ways. <clears throat> we pass it on. Sometimes intentionally, other times unintentionally. But the result is the same, that we send the message to people, you are not enough, you are not adequate, get out of my sight, hide from me, I don't want to see you, and so we end up not wanting to be seen, hiding behind the trees of the forest. 
That's the enemy's strategy. The enemy's strategy is to separate us, to separate parents from children, husbands from wives, wives from husbands, work colleagues from those they work with, and ultimately human beings from God himself. That's the strategy. Well, we might expect that in this marvelous story, the enemy's strategy is going to be played off against God's purpose, but we would expect then that God would have his own response to this problem, which of course he does. And the response is seen right away in Genesis chapter 3, in the God who seeks. And I, I love the way God does this. He comes walking in the garden and he comes with a question. A question to the people hiding in the trees. Simply this. Where are you? Which doesn't mean that he's confused or he's lost track of them. What it means is that he wants a conversation. Let's talk about this problem that is so overwhelming for you that rather than get it fixed, you think that somehow hiding from me is the way to deal with your shame. God comes to reconnect. He seeks us out. And that story is going to run on from Genesis chapter 3 right to the very end of the Bible. It's another way to talk about the gospel, the good news that God doesn't give up. He doesn't say, up, the light is on on the dashboard, this car needs to go to the junkyard. That would be a reasonable approach. Not what he does. He doesn't say, this car is going to take too much to fix. Although, in the story of the Bible, it is going to take... An incredible cost to fix the problem. But God comes seeking. He comes seeking because the very purpose of his creation is uh, summarized here in this icon that we've looked at. Not recently, but we looked at this a number of times, right? It's Reblev's painting of the three friends who come to Abraham and, uh, and who in his mind represent the Trinity, the eternal fellowship of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we've noted this before that the way they are oriented in that icon is that there is a place open at the table. They are turned toward each other, but in the interesting perspective of the icon, they're not only turned toward each other, but they're turned toward us. There's a place at the table for you, for me. Now, of course, I could, as a descendant of that first pair who wouldn't who hid in the trees so that God would not see them, as one of their descendants, I could not in myself come to that place at the table. 
See, because you, you notice the three figures. They're, they're turned toward each other and their gaze is open. But if I came to the table, I, I would have to do this, right? I'd have to turn away. I could not bear the gaze because shame has taken such control of my life. I couldn't stand the presence. That's why Jesus tells us it's the pure in heart who see God. But in my shame, I know, I know that that's not the place for me. And yet that's, that's what the biblical story says I'm created for. I'm created in the image of God with a likeness to him. So the purpose of God is to expand the fellowship, to have places there for all of us at the table, to share eternally in the life of God. But what will be the cost to repair the human machine so that the warning lights aren't going off? So that the relation can, relationship can be what it was intended to be. What is the cost? And the cost is that the very God who created us as creatures who can experience shame, he will come into our world since we can't directly step into his world, he will step into our world. And he will take our shame. And he'll take it to the cross. See, the cross is, the cross is about shame. It's, it's about pain, physical pain and suffering Yes, in an extraordinary way. That's, it was designed that way. The Romans perfected it for that purpose. But they also perfected it as an instrument, not just of physical torture, but of shame. So to be crucified is to be exposed to the gaze of everyone. See, most pictures or images of the crucifixion present the bodies as minimally clothed. Which, you know, that, that's all right. But that's, that's not historical reality. The victims were crucified naked because it was intentionally an exercise of shaming. And the, the God who created you and me for a place at the table and invites us to turn back to him, he knew that what we needed was someone who could bear our shame. 
and in doing so, to take it away. So the writer of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy of having you and me at the table unashamed, who for that joy endured the cross, scorning its shame, embracing that shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the gospel, friends. God takes our shame because it's too great for us to deal with. Well, so a couple things to think about as we work on our lives this week. Kurt Thompson says, putting shame to death, as Jesus did, as in crucifixion, is a slow process. What about us? We are partnering with God as its executioners. Ah, So Jesus does the fundamental work, but you and I have to embrace that because the temptation for us is to say, yes, Jesus died, but I still, I still don't, I don't want to be exposed. I don't want to have to acknowledge who I am and what's going on inside of me. So Kurt Thompson says that's the process. And it's another way of thinking about something we talked about uh, back at the beginning of this series. It's that idea of repentance, isn't it? Which we said is not a once and done. It's a lifetime of repentance. It's a lifetime of turning back. What do you do when you turn back? You say, God, I've gotten astray. I've gotten off the path. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not the person I want to be yet. So I'm, I'm coming back. I want, to, I, I want to rebuild that relationship. I want the relationship to grow. And so as I look to the cross, as I look to Jesus, the one who bore my shame, I say, God, I can come to you not because I'm what I want to be yet, not because there isn't stuff in me that embarrasses me, makes me feel ashamed, but I'm coming to you because you are the one who can deal with my shame. You're the one who can transform me by the power of your spirit. And so I'm coming because Jesus has made the way. In doing so, we put shame to death. And then I think this, friends, church above all places should be a shaming-free zone where people are invited to live in joyful fellowship with the triune God and with one another. Unfortunately, our churches too often are shame factories. Too often, you know, we talk about holiness and lots of stuff and we do so in a way that makes people feel worse not better that increases shame rather than encourages the other person encourages us to turn back to seek the God who is already seeking us some of you are members over at uh, Planet Fitness 
And you know the sign-ins on the wall. It's a judgment-free zone. A lot of body shaming takes place at a lot of gyms. And what they're saying is, we don't want to do body shaming here. Uh, if you're just getting started in exercise or whether you've been doing it all your life, doesn't matter. Come here and we've got space for you and we, we just want to encourage you. <clears throat> I think what they're talking about is not so much a judgment-free zone, but really a shame-free zone. That's, that's really what they're after. It's, it's a good idea, right? Well, the church, maybe we need to put signs up like that as well, you know? Shame-free zone. Let's give grace to one another. Let's encourage people to press into God even at those times when we don't feel like it because we really do believe the gospel. We really believe that God sent his son to take our shame so that we could live into the joy that he saw ahead of him as he hung on that cross. Well, today's Communion Sunday, and we're going to think more about the cross and what Jesus did for us. Jack, if you will come and lead us, that'll be great.